0: What is up, you guys? Welcome to another edition of the Fundamental Health Podcast. I, I just, I'm almost speechless at an email that I got today from someone who found us at Hardened and Soil and has been doing an animal-based diet and using our supplements. Um, this is from Christy. She said she just left the office of her oncology team. She has um, stage four, HER2 positive invasive ductal carcinoma of the breast. Um, she said that her finances were tight. So we sent her a bottle of some hardened and soil supplements. She's not able to work due to her cancer. She says she just left the oncologist for a second opinion and they're on the same page. There's a complete response to treatment. She has no active disease left. She will not be needing more chemo. She's going to continue to receive infusions of Perceptin and Perheta per, per per every three weeks for 12 months. She will be doing PET scans every four months. If she's disease free at 12 months, she will be a candidate for surgery and radiation. She says, we did it, Dr. Paul. I was only able to stay the course because of your supplements. There's no way that I would have been able to remain on the most aggressive chemotherapy plan City of Hope offers without bone marrow and liver as well as lifeblood. They truly saved my life. I know my journey is far from over. I know that stage four means I will look over my shoulder for the rest of my life. That is going to be a very long time. (laughs) I'm going to watch my baby boy grow up. I'm not going anywhere. I will continue uh, to update you as we progress along this journey. So um, obviously, I, I do not take credit for that. This, this is all Christy's doing, um, all of her work and all of the wishes to her. But I'm so grateful that she sent me this email and that hardened and Soil Supplements could be a part of her, her chemo to get her through this and could be a part of her recovery and her ongoing nutrition. This is essentially why I built uh, this company and why... I feel so proud of what we do at Heart and Soil. We make grass-fed, grass-finished, desiccated organ supplements sourced from New Zealand. They're the best we could find, the best on the planet that I could find, and bone marrow and liver, lifeblood. These are amazing supplements that have helped so many regain health and vitality. Like I say, that it's helped so many reclaim their birthright to radical health. I mean, getting emails like this is why I do what I do. Um, I knew that when I got into this world of animal-based diets that my parents, my sister, people like Christy, perhaps we're not gonna be able to eat organs. And so putting organs, these incredibly nutrient rich foods in the capsules, desiccating them is, is an incredibly meaningful thing. So this is, this is an incredible thing. So thanks Christy for the email. I wanted you guys all to hear about that. It's an incredible story that should really embolden all of us. Uh, I wish Christy all the best. And I'm so excited that all of you keep emailing us at Heart and Soil with your success stories. If you're listening to this and you want to get more organs in your diet, which I would highly encourage, check us out at heartandsoil.co and reclaim your birthright to radical health. I believe it's your birthright to be radically healthy. Radical health is something that we talk a lot about in this podcast this week with Evan Brand. He's been on the podcast before. He's a certified functional nutritional therapy practitioner. He's a certified functional medicine practitioner. We did a first episode on mold that you may want to check out, mold toxicity, how to uh, know about it, how to treat it. And I had so much on my mind with COVID recently. I've been reading so much about vaccination efficacy when it comes to cases, vaccination efficacy when it comes to other things. Uh, I recently got deleted from Instagram, as many of you guys know. The new handle is at carnivoremd2.0. And if you want to be able to follow me with all my stuff, go to HardAndSoil.co and sign up for the censorship free newsletter. You should definitely do that because though I'm not saying anything at all controversial on Instagram now, there's a reasonable chance I'll get deleted again. Um, Anyway, we talk about all that. We talk about COVID. We talk about ivermectin. uh, We look at some studies. We talk about leaky gut and COVID, which is a connection that I was not aware of. I appreciate Evan bringing a lot of that information to my attention. We just talk about what's going on right now in the COVID world. Um, So hopefully this podcast will be valuable to all of you. Uh, As I say in this podcast, I have concerns for my family in the newest realm of Delta variants, and I have a lot of concerns about vaccine mandates and what is going on in the COVID world today. So enjoy this podcast with Evan Brand. I hope it answers many of your questions. It's very topical. I recorded it literally the day before it's being released. So a lot of the information is things that I've been reading over the last week and trying to make some sense of looking at do vaccines accelerate the spread perhaps? There's reasonable hypotheses that they do, but that's something you can't even suggest on social media without getting canceled for the rest of your eternity existence, uh, et cetera. Um, Are our cases being decreased by the vaccine? I don't think so. I think there's really good data to suggest that. Uh, Certainly, vaccines do decrease hospitalizations, deaths, and emergency room visits. But should they be mandated? I don't think so. Not in any way, shape, or form. And I think that uh, the recent uh, mandates are unconstitutional. And this is not a political statement. It is just a statement about hypocrisy our rights as humans and the slippery slope that we are all on. So I'm glad to release this podcast with Evan Brand. I hope you all enjoy it. I appreciate all of my sponsors. I want to give a shout out to White Oak Pastures. You guys know these guys there at whiteoakpastures.com in Bluffton, Georgia. They are a sixth generation family farm. there, doing amazing work in regenerative agriculture. They're making grass-fed, grass-finished beef, lamb. Uh, They have Iberico pork, which is amazing. They have corn and soy free chickens, which they did at our request. Uh, So check them out, whiteoakpastures.com. It's some of the best meat I've ever eaten. You can use the code CarnivoreMD for 10% off your first order. As I've said before, you vote with your dollars and you cannot abstain from voting with your dollars. You are either supporting factory farming, Monsanto, Agrigenta with your dollars, or you're supporting farms like White Oak Pastures. So please check them out and support them as well. Another farm that I love is Belcampo. They are in Northern California and they are fantastic. They are also doing organic, grass-fed, grass-finished organ meats, cuts of steak. Their Uruguayan ribeye is one of my favorites ever. And Anya Fernald, who really was key in that process, has been on the podcast in the past. She believes many of the things that we believe. She absolutely believes in animal-based diets and has used them. Uh, on herself to feel amazing. I recently talked to her on the phone. She said she's lost a ton of weight. Uh, she didn't really have that much to lose. Anya's pretty healthy, but she lost even more weight and she feels amazing on an animal-based diet. She's getting organs and her company, Belcampo, is doing a lot of good in the world as well. These are the companies we should be supporting with our dollars. So check them out at belcampo.com. Use the code CarnivoreMD for 20% off your order. And um, I love them. I love Anya and I love what they're doing. And I uh, In terms of sleeping, which is not a farm, but it is something that is critical, Uh, I love my eight sleep mattress. I'm so stoked you guys, these guys are sponsoring the podcast. This mattress is the coldest mattress I've ever used. It goes from 55 to 110. They've got a, a Pod Pro mattress or a cover that goes on your mattress, and they are fantastic. They, as you know, there's no one universal temperature that you need to get deep sleep, but uh, your body temperature that cools at night will help you get deeper sleep. This is one of the things I miss when I'm in Costa Rica. When I come back to Austin, I get to sleep on my Eight Sleep uh, Pod Pro, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, most of the mattresses I sleep on when I'm outside of Austin or body heat and you wake up kind of hot in the middle of the night, it messes it up. But the Eight Sleep Pod Pro goes further. They have dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking They have a mattress or a cover, like I said. It's like AI in your mattress and it adjusts each side of the bed independently. This is so cool. Eight Sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%. It's incredible. Uh, So go to eightsleep.com. That is E-I-G-H-T, S-L-E-E-P.com, front slash CarnivoreMD. Check out the Pod Pro, save 150 bucks at checkout using my code, which is M D. So just in case you missed that eight sleep.com E I G H T S L E E P that's eight sleep.com front slash carnivore MD use the code carnivore MD to get 150 bucks off at checkout. You will not regret this mattress. It's, it's fantastic. It's really, it's like, Dare I say the Tesla of mattresses? That's a controversial statement. You get what I'm saying. Uh, last but not least, I love the folks in Primal Pastures. I'm so stoked that I keep adding regenerative farms to this list. You should know about Primal Pastures. I've talked about the other farms a lot, but this is a new one. You should definitely know. They've been founded since 2012 and they go beyond being organic. All the animals, pasture-raised, grass-fed, grass-finished, it's incredible. They have no vaccines, no antibiotics, no hormones, no growth supplements, non-GMO, soy-free, certified organic feed, pasture-raised. They have no exceptions. The chickens are never given grains or corns in their supplemental feed. They deliver anywhere to your doorstep in the contiguous US. They have chicken, beef, lamb, pork, fish, honey, pasture bone broth, organ cuts, coffee, and more. New customers will receive 10% off their first purchase using the code CarnivoreMD at primalpastures.com. That is primalpastures.com front slash CarnivoreMD. I just feel... I don't know, I'm just stoked. I mean, this is an amazing podcast. It was fun to record with Evan. I feel so good about all these companies that I'm supporting with this podcast that make this possible, that will bring uh, good things into your lives, that'll improve your sleep, that'll bring amazing uh, nutrition to you in the form of meat or organs or hardened soil. As you know, my company, that'll help you get desiccated organs, the easiest way to get these organs. And uh, I think these are all super important conversations and how cool is it to hear Christy's story Uh, early on in this introduction. So if you like this podcast, please leave me a review at Apple Podcasts. It's how we spread the message to more people. Thank you for doing that. And I will give a free signed copy of my book every month to somebody that leaves a review at Apple Podcasts as a thank you. And join the Center for Free Newsletter. Love you all. Stay radical. Enjoy this podcast with Evan Brand. Evan Brand, what's up? Thanks for coming on the podcast, my friend. Number two,
1: Oh, thanks for having me back. You know, I went on the YouTube video we did together and everybody's like, please do part two, part two, part two about mold. So we can hit some of that if you want, but I think we've got some other stuff to hit on too. We've
0: got some other stuff to hit on. And just so people know, I'm going to say this in the beginning, because some people watch this video on YouTube, Evan and I are going to talk about things that can't be discussed on YouTube today. So if you're watching this on YouTube, this video on YouTube is going to end in about 20 seconds and you're going to have to go to the Rumble channel. So please go to the Rumble channel if you want to see our faces. Obviously, if you're listening to this on an RSS feed, on any of the podcast outlets, you're going to be able to hear the whole thing unless I don't think those will get censored. But I'm going to have to do this increasingly with my podcast in the future because uh, I want to be able to have candid conversations about what's going on in the world now. And these cannot be had on YouTube. Uh, we know that. So if you're, going to, if you're watching this on YouTube, please go to the Rumble channel. This is the end of the YouTube video. But um, today, I definitely want to talk about what's going on with COVID. And this is why we can't talk about this. We couldn't talk about this on uh, on YouTube. So hopefully, people are back over here on Rumble, and we'll go from there. But let's just—I'll just ask you. And of course, you know, we'll, but we're, we will both say, you know, I'm a I'm a board-certified physician. You know, I'm not an immunologist. I'm not a virologist. I'm not treating patients in the ICU right now. Um, you know, Evan is a—you're uh, an NTP, right? And
1: yeah, my, my two credentials a uh, certified functional medicine practitioner and an FNTP, functional nutritional therapy practitioner. I run an online functional medicine practice. I've seen over a thousand patients around the world over the last seven years um, in the trenches clinically every single week, um, working on advanced DNA stool testing, Lyme and co infections, organic acids testing, mycotoxin screens, advanced blood panels. Uh, working on autoimmune diseases, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis, parasite diseases, bacterial overgrowth, uh, even COVID. I've had so many people reach out to me during COVID and they're saying that they know that if they go into the hospital, which I've got a story we can dive into soon, but they'll say, I know that if I go into a hospital or if I go to my doctor to get XYZ, I'm not going to get it. Can you help? And while I'm not prescribing because I'm not a medical doctor, I am providing other solutions and other protocols that have literally saved people from going into the emergency room. We've had several clients who were on the verge of going into the ER. Luckily, we were able to implement some things and we kept them out of the ER. And I realize now dealing firsthand with that experience of someone in the ICU with COVID. It's not a place you want to be at all. It's more like a prison rather than a place that you're actually going to get real therapy, which I I can't even believe those words are coming out of my mouth as I say it.
0: It's scary stuff. Um, yeah. So I'll ask you this and then I'll give my take on it. I mean, what's your sense of where we are right now, Evan, with COVID, with adjunctive therapies, with vaccines, you know, we're on rumble and we're on other platforms right now. So you don't have to pull any punches, presumably.
1: Well, unfortunately, I mean, if you just look at like the cases, I figured we'd be done with this thing by now. But according to some really, really smart people, and there are some papers, although it's not conclusive yet, we seem to think that the injections are actually driving some of the variants. And so if you look at the cases, and you kind of match that, there's almost like this inverse pattern, like cases were really, really, really dropping. And then as all the cases dropped then all the injections went up and then now there was this little bit of lag and now the injections have risen to almost near record levels, at least here in Kentucky and I've seen many other states now. They're like hitting record cases. And and I kind of look at that and I always thought the numbers were, I don't know, I don't want to say the numbers were not true, but like, you know, CNN and all that, they were famous for their death ticker, right? And they they were found with Project Veritas and some of these undercover investigations, they were found to be wanting that ticker to look worse. And they were like, Oh, you're telling me there, there, there weren't like a bigger jump in deaths like come on, come on, we need more deaths and there were people within the organization literally rallying to promote more deaths because it would promote more fear and fear drives whatever I don't know that's nasty so I don't want to go too far down that because I think it's a waste of time. But what I will say is that we're still in the dark ages when it comes to patients getting what they need to get. So my uncle right now, as we speak is in the ICU and uh, he's an awesome guy. He's 58. He, he's definitely obese. I mean, he's definitely obese. I, I can't deny that he, he likes beer too much and that's a problem. And we know that, but I'm not, I'm not close enough with him to really advise him and like be his, you know, advisor, so to speak, I mean, I'd love for him to just get your book and just go carnivore with some berries. And he would probably be not in the situation he's in right now. Because there's a study which we can talk about, which uh, I'll share on my screen for for folks that are listening on on video, hopefully you can check this out. If you're on audio, I'll just kind of give you the spark notes. But there's a paper that came out in January, in the Journal of the American Society of Microbiology. And it was titled, which this is kind of weird grammar but they say do an altered gut microbiota and associated leaky gut affect covid-19 severity. So grammatically that title doesn't make sense but they've got an image within this study and it shows exactly what i've suspected all along but i didn't have any paper to prove it until now which is that the people that are ending up in the icu like my uncle are people who have much, much more increased binding to the ACE2 because of the leakage into circulation. So you can see this image here. And basically what you're seeing, these little red dots, I'm assuming is just the, the CoV-2. Yeah, here's the legend. So there's the CoV-2 getting into the bloodstream. And then that's what's creating this, uncon- what they're describing as an uncontrolled inflammatory response versus at the bottom, look at this healthy gut and they're showing no issue with the intestinal permeability, right? They're showing no issue with tight junctions. They're showing the tight junctions are sealed, indicating a healthy, it's actually a one cell layer. I think people forget that it's literally a one cell layer, your gut lining. I mean, it's very, very delicate, but you're seeing here, the COVID-2 is not getting in. And as they say in the paper, there's rare binding to the ACE2. And I'm seeing all sorts of crazy papers about people having uh, death in their intestinal tract like their tissue is literally dying in their intestinal tract due to the inflammation here and so i'm not saying that if you just take probiotics and eat a grass-fed steak you're not gonna end up sick i'm not saying that but i mean this is just showing what we suspected all along is that the gut has a huge huge connection you take that a step further here's another paper in in an immunology journal and it was called microbiota modulation of the gut lung axis i've never even heard the term gut lung axis i've heard gut brain axis i've heard um, gut adrenal axis i've talked about the gut skin axis for years i've never I, i did not even hear hear this term until i saw this but you can look right in here and i'll just get you straight to this the smoking gun here intestinal dysbiosis which is something i work on every single day clinically I use a ton of herbs to help people with bacterial overgrowth like klebsiella, staph, strep, pseudomonas, uh, morganella, citrobacter, uh, parasites like blasto, giardia, cryptosporidium, H. pylori is a huge infection I work on. I had H. pylori. It made me super sick. I lost a ton of weight. H. pylori damages your parietal cells, which makes stomach acid. So you end up with what's called hypochlorhydria, low stomach acid that then allows your food to ferment in your gut and then it feeds this intestinal dysbiosis. So that's like a little bit of the backstory of it. But here's the smoking gun. The intestinal dysbiosis is associated with increased mortality in respiratory infections due to an exacerbated inflammation and decreased anti-inflammatory mechanism in the lungs and the gut. And then here, check this out at the bottom. We showed potential beneficial role of probiotics and discuss the possible role of probiotics. That was kind of an outdated study because then there's another one which is a huge paper. I haven't even got to read every word of it yet, but this huge paper all about probiotics and how they're an incredibly beneficial intervention and they should be used. There's enough evidence now to promote this. So hospitals, ICUs, they're giving antibiotics. My uncle right now is on antibiotics. They really need to be using probiotics. So we just we got it all wrong
0: we often get it all wrong. <laughs> I thought this was, this, this is something that I hadn't really seen before. So thanks for pointing out this series of papers to me, but it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? There are ACE2 receptors on every epithelium in the body. They're on the lung epithelium, the endothelium of your blood vessels, the, the gut epithelium, uh, all of these epithelia have ACE2 receptors. And all of these places are locations where we see the SARS-CoV-2 virus manifesting pathology. We see it in the lungs. We see it in blood vessels. We see it in the gut. People often get diarrhea. So I don't know why we wouldn't imagine that um, someone could have SARS-CoV-2 in their gut, either from you know, swallowing saliva from the pharynx. So you know, we think about inhaling SARS-CoV-2 into our mouth. Uh, into our nasal passages, but certainly you're going to get SARS-CoV-2 in your gut. You're going to swallow saliva that is going to have the virus. It's going to move down your esophagus. It's also going to move into your trachea, but you're going to get a SARS-CoV-2 infection in your gut. And how interesting that perhaps as a hypothesis, people who have more damage to the gut due to underlying dysbiosis, which is something that we can talk about, may have this, this colloquial quote-unquote leaky gut, which comes up in everything now. Every condition is connected with leaky gut. We know this. There should be so much more of a research focus on leaky gut, in my opinion. But how interesting that maybe people who are getting lots of diarrhea or GI symptoms with COVID are those who are having more, have a baseline gut that is already weaker. And perhaps that's tied to systemic inflammation in other ways. But it is interesting to me that there are many tissues beyond the lung epithelium that are going to have this ACE2 receptor. And I think that for me, when I see this data the takeaway is let's consider probiotics, yes, and let's think about all the things that make our guts leaky and incorporate that into the treatment of COVID or the prevention of COVID or this overall health uh, impetus that we're trying to create for people, right?
1: Yeah, let me show you this too. This was just a couple other screenshots. I'm actually doing a whole lecture on this. I've got a course that I've created like a functional medicine training course for gut health. And I'm having to add new lectures because I'm learning all the time. I thought I was done, but I'm not. I guess you're never done when it comes to this stuff. But check this out. So a clinical trial concluded the supplementary of probiotics treatment containing a couple specific strains here, which these are very common strains, by the way, these are not really like rare, I mean, lactobacillus, rhamnosus. almost every professional probiotics can have this strain and the bacillus develop significantly less ventilator associated pneumonia compared to those without probiotic supplementation. So long story short, simply adding probiotics, you can develop significantly less ventilator associated pneumonia. And he has pneumonia now because he's been on the ventilator and he's on antibiotics. And I I could pull up like 30 screenshots and just bore you by the end, but it's already known that the antibiotics are actually worsening the outcomes with people. And now all these doctors in these papers are saying, Hey, by the way, can we just stop willy nilly throwing everyone antibiotics? Because they were doing it as kind of like a just in case my, my question to my aunt, who's actually a nurse, she was in the in the room. And I said, Well, can you ask the doctor why they put them on antibiotics? They had no answer. They had no reason. It was just like a just because thing. It's kind of like, well, just because that's just because everybody else is getting them. So let's just give him some too. And then in regards to ivermectin, do you want to talk about that for a minute?
0: Yeah. Can I just ask you a question? Um, the last paper you showed that was actually in SARS-CoV-2 patients that they were giving those probiotics and that result, that was a study in SARS. Can you show that one again?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let me pull it up here. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll give you the full paper too. If people want to go through it, Uh, let's see, that's not the, let me see. I got to share you that screenshot. Okay. Here it comes.
0: Yeah. So the title here is recent. The title of this subheading is recent evidence of probiotics in COVID-19 preclinical and clinical studies. And there's a reference here, number fifty-nine. In a moment, we can scroll or you can share uh, the actual reference that this is coming from. This whole paper, but this is uh, a clinical trial, so it's one clinical trial in COVID. But they do say that supplementation with probiotics containing Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, Bacillus subtilis, Enterococcus fecalis, Significantly less ventilator-associated pneumonia. That's reference fifty-nine from this paper. So that's quite interesting that this is being used in COVID. And I'm curious, what antibiotic is your is your uncle on?
1: You know, I didn't even ask. I'm guessing it's probably something IV because you know he is on the ventilator. So I'm guessing it might be like vancomycin. I'm sure it's something pretty heavy duty.
0: Yeah, I don't quite understand why they would be giving him. I guess when you if you do a CT scan of somebody's lungs and you think oh they have a pneumonia or they have some stuff in their lungs. Are you dealing with ARDS? Or are you dealing with pneumonia? You, they may just be throwing antibiotics. I think when people get critically ill, they often do throw a lot of antibiotics. And we, ironically, I mean, again, neither of us are critical care physicians. Neither of us are treating this patient. So it's hard to critique their, their modalities. But um, it is interesting that we're talking about the use of antibiotics and in the same sentence, talking about the use of probiotics, or at least the use of therapies that may improve uh, dysbiosis or improve the overall health of the gut lining. So yeah,
1: yeah. let let me let me go into I know you wanted to look at another little bit of this, this this big paper here. So the very top of the paper is uh, SARS-CoV-2 microbiome dysbiosis linked disorders and possible probiotics role. So this is January this year, biomed, I guess that's pharmacotherapy. Anyhow, just in the very beginning, check this out. You know, I test and I see a lot of Clostridia infections. I'd say almost every day I'm working with someone that has a Clostridia infection. And you can see right here that it's talking about uh, Clostridium and other bacteria and the severity of disease. And they're saying here that gut dysbiosis and strains, such as, and then they break down some of these strains directly linked with diarrhea, colitis, IVD, inflammation. And then it says right here, also the increased death prevalence in COVID-19 ICU patients seems correlated with the increased antibiotic use. So, I mean, they're, they're straight up linking it to that, but that's just standard therapy. And like I said, there's no reason for it. I mean, almost as soon as he went in, he was definitely low oxygen, which when I talk with Dr. Corey, he's now even saying that putting, on, putting people on the vent too soon is a problem right? Which this is like almost over my head. I am not an ICU doctor at all. I'm not a medical doctor at all. So this is like far beyond my level of expertise, but I'll just kind of parrot what Dr. Corey was saying to me is that, you know, we're putting people on the vent so soon because of low oxygen, but then that could potentially do even more damage. And so same thing with the antibiotics, you go in and that's just the therapy that you get. So it's pretty nuts.
0: And, and you're in an unenviable position of having a family member in the ICU, I'll mention that I spoke to my dad yesterday. Uh, I don't think he listens to the podcast, but I don't think he would. He might mind me sharing this, but uh, we'll be authentic here. My dad said he's scared of dying of COVID. He's a 71-year-old physician. Um, and he's retired. He's an internist. And he's he's scared of dying of COVID. He's been vaccinated. Um, I've stated publicly that both of my parents have received, I think, two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And he said that based on what he's read, uh, he feels like Delta is a whole new infection. And we can talk about that in this podcast as well, perhaps. And that he's scared of dying. And I said, <laughs> this is the craziest thing, Evan. Uh, I said, well, wh- what are you doing? What are you doing? And he said, well, I'm, I'm not going out much. I said, well, did you change your diet? And he said, well, I'm eating less. And I said, are you eating any, any better foods? And he said, well, I'm eating less. And I said, dad, are you still you know, doing seed oils and, and processed Grains, and he said, "I'm doing less. I'm doing half as much." And I thought, "Oh my goodness!" So I'll just I'll be authentic and vulnerable with the podcast audience and say that I was I was a little bit taken aback. I have not been able to convince my dad to stop drinking glucerna. I have not been able to stop convincing my dad to drink this this weight loss drink from Abbott that literally contains soybean oil in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Um, and he I haven't been able to convince him to make lifestyle changes, and yet he remains. Literally, deathly afraid of of a coronavirus infection, and that that's a scary thought because I think to myself, "Am I going to have a family member in the ICU soon as well?" And and I asked him, "Dad, if you if you got symptoms, would you take ivermectin?" And perhaps this is a segue to our a conversation about ivermectin in this podcast. And he said, "No, no, I wouldn't. I would maybe go to an urgent care. Maybe they would give me monoclonal antibodies." Um, incidentally, I I've seen some rumors, and I think they're substantiated, that the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States government, at the behest of Joe Biden, is now controlling the distribution of monoclonal antibodies. Um, did you see anything about that?
1: I haven't heard of that, but I had a telemedicine consult with a doctor because I was trying to get an extra stash of ivermectin to have on hand, and she sent me a message. I may be able to pull it up, but basically the message was, due to the American Pharmacy Board and all this you know, if you effective immediately, all pharmacists are going to stop filling prescriptions. All doctors are going to stop recommending it. They're all going to lose their licenses if they do. So now, uh, it seems that the only way uh, to get it now, based on my personal experience, is through compounding pharmacies. It's almost like you have to go. I mean, technically these aren't underground, but the way I think of it, you're almost having to go quote underground to circumnavigate the conventional pharmacies, like. Walgreens and, and and all of that. Now, there are certain states that it's completely illegal for a pharmacist not to fill a prescription from a doctor's order, but in some states, these pharmacists are literally rebelling. I don't know who's telling them to do this, but they're rebelling and saying, no, I will not fill that prescription. So if your father, for example, got a prescription for ivermectin, there's a possibility that the pharmacist would deny that and not fill it. So then you got to find another way to get it.
0: And so my father concluded by saying that if his colleagues in infectious disease um, he joked. He was like, I don't know if any of them are still practicing because they're all older than he is. <laughs> and you know, he's basically retired now. But he said, if any of his colleagues in infectious disease recommended it that he would consider ivermectin, um, one of his colleagues who he trusts sent him a meta-analysis of ivermectin, it was intriguing to him. But as we'll talk about in this section of the podcast, I think that some questions still remain about ivermectin. But I'll tell you what, um, based on what I've read about ivermectin so far, and I want to go further down this rabbit hole. And we'll talk more about it in future podcasts. If my father ended up in the ICU uh, or or even hospitalized with COVID, I would I would hope that the doctors would consider giving him a dose doses of ivermectin. Um, and again, that's based on my understanding, based on the reading of the literature that I've done so far. It's not a perfect drug. We don't have all the data. We will in the next six months, I think, know very conclusively how how much ivermectin may help someone. But based on what I've seen, I think that that the benefits are um going to outweigh the risks but there are some risks to it and we can talk about both sides and we can talk about the what we know about the data and what's limiting with ivermectin Um, perhaps we could start with a little let's just start with a little bit of history about ivermectin Um, if you know some of this you can share it or i can just share what i learned today about the history of ivermectin has a really fascinating history and then we can get into sort of the media kerfuffle on ivermectin before we get into a little bit of the data
1: Yeah, well, I want to comment on your dad and your situation. You know, a lot of people they look at us in the health field, and they think, Oh, man, you know, Dr. Paul, his family is probably all eating grass fed steak for dinner. They're probably like spoon feeding themselves liver. Like, I guarantee he's got the healthiest, most like down family ever. And I don't want you to feel bad about that. Because you know, I've been trying to get my grandfather, my parents and other people in my family to change for years. And you know, my grandfather, he still drinks chocolate milk, that's just straight high fructose corn syrup. So don't feel too bad about your dad doing the protein shake. I mean, my grandpa I'll I'll straight up ask him hey what'd you eat for breakfast a donut I'm like come on grandpa and I and I just I lay it on him hard every single time but he's just so happy and so content it's like this guy's been around for for 80 80 years it's like at a certain point I almost just have to let it go because for a long time it really ate me up inside and it really it killed me to know that that if he were to get sick he's going to get worse and And I, and I look at his weight and I, and I look at his exercise performance and I think, my God, this guy's so optimistic. He's so happy. How much better could he be if he would just stop with the chocolate milk and the donuts? But, you know, I just let it go. I I just couldn't bear the, I guess the weight on my shoulders, you know, the emotional baggage with worrying that because I couldn't get him off corn syrup, that he's unhealthier. It's almost like I owned that, you know, I think, I think is, and maybe you experience this too, um with your father. But when you know, something's not good for somebody, you almost feel the weight of their decision on you. Like it's your fault now that you can't get him off of that. Like now it's your responsibility to get him off of that. And that's tough. It was too much.
0: It's challenging. Uh, he's had documented coronary artery disease for over 20 years. I've talked about this in the past, probably 30 years. You know, I have a family history of early onset coronary artery disease, which makes my coronary artery calcium score of zero, my CAC score of zero, despite a quote, elevated LDL. Uh, most recently, I think my LDL was 220 milligrams per deciliter or something. Um, but I've had it higher than that in the past. Remarkable. Um, but it is, it is hard when my dad won't change. And I just think that as we age, uh, a lot of people have trouble with plasticity and their thought patterns. And so it's difficult to talk to him. But it got me thinking about ivermectin. Like if my father were to get hospitalized, or he were to get COVID and have a severe case, what, what would I do, what would I recommend? He probably wouldn't ask me for my recommendations, nor would it be ethical for his son to make recommendations, but I'm just thinking in my head, what would I do? Um, and it brought up a lot of these issues. So Ivermectin was definitely on my mind for my dad. And I, I just will also mention this. I saw, as I was researching a little bit Iver, about Ivermectin before this podcast, and again, I'll just note that I haven't gone fully down the rabbit hole. There's a, there's a, there's a video on YouTube from the Washington Post Um, of a number of late night talk show hosts over the last week that were making fun of ivermectin. And it was Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, and another guy that I'd never seen or heard of. And it was just, it's actually kind of detestable and nauseating to see these talk show hosts who have absolutely no medical training, no appreciation for this molecule, joking about horse dewormer and horses. And I think someone in the FDA hired a marketing analyst and said, how can we really smear this medication in the best way. And and so they, they, they tweeted, you know, you're not a horse or a cow. Stop, stop taking ivermectin y'all. And, and that, that has been picked up by so many people now Uh, it's become a real viral meme. And it's quite interesting that they're, they're really trying to smear this medication um, despite what may be benefits. I think the data is still out, but the fact that these talk show hosts are saying like this is a horse medication really, shows their ignorance. This is a medication that was, I think, first discovered in 1975 by a scientist in Japan who found a fungus or found a bacteria living in the soil that could inhibit the growth of um, certain parasites. And uh, that scientist's name um, was uh, Satoshi Omura. I love all the Satoshis now with Bitcoin. And he isolated a strain of uh, an unusual streptomyces. This is what I was telling you about on the phone the other day. The bacteria that makes ivermectin is called Streptomyces Avermatilis. and that that bacterium is now only really owned by Merck, which makes the production of more ivermectin very tricky. But in in the early 1970s, Satoshi Omura discovered this bacteria. He sent it to William Campbell. Um, The bacterial culture from that bacteria could cure mice infected with a roundworm. Uh, Campbell also isolated active compounds from bacterial culture, naming them avermectins, and some of them had the ability to be antiparasitic. Subsequently, they were developed as veterinary antiparasitics, and then by Merck in the 1980s, and in 1988, Merck donated all ivermectin uh, needed to eradicate river blindness in Africa. And that's been used by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And in 1998, um, they expanded the donation to include all lymphatic filariasis, which is essentially elephantiasis. So anyone who's ever seen someone with elephantiasis, this is like the, 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 one of the famous pictures from my childhood in the Encyclopedia Britannica is you'd see a guy with elephantiasis, and it looks like they have an elephant leg because they have these worms and there's so much venous stasis in the leg because of this lymphatic filariasis or perhaps lymphatic stasis more than venous stasis in the leg. It's the lymph system gets destroyed by these, these worms. And so um, it should be known that, that ivermectin has been used for you know, 50 years, 40 years in humans. It won the Nobel Prize in 2015, and it's a molecule that's, that's certainly a human medication. There's no question about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to try to even steal 1% of Dr. Corey's limelight, you know, obviously, we're gonna, uh, we need to get him on your podcast. And he's gonna, he's gonna say far more things than that go beyond my education. Let me tell you exactly what Jamie Kimmel said, because I think this is just crazy. But yeah, the FDA, they posted on their, their Instagram page uh, in August, and they put a picture of a horse and they said, you're not a horse stop it with the hashtag ivermectin. It's not authorized for treating COVID. And I brought that up to Dr. Corey and his argument to that was, well, it's called off-label prescribing. He's done that his entire career. Something doesn't have to be approved by the FDA to be used as a treatment. And checkmate basically is what he said. He's like, that doesn't have to be approved. But, But anyway, Jimmy Kimmel, he said, talking about, you know, potentially like crowded ICUs, He said, the choice doesn't seem tough to me. A vaccinated person having a heart attack? Yes, come right on in. We'll take care of you. Unvaccinated guy who gobbled horse goo? Rest in peace, Wheezy. So there you go. (laughs) And that's okay on mainstream television. I couldn't
0: believe that Jimmy Kimmel said that. I'll just, I cannot. My suspicion is that these talk show hosts are being pressured or paid by pharma or by the government. I just, I don't see how Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert is always leaning this way. Um, And uh, another talk show host, like, I can't see how they're all talking about it without the US government or somebody stepping in and saying, hey, it's going to be good for your network. You know, we want you to say something about ivermectin. I mean, they're all talking about it at the same time and they're all using the same jokes. And it's, it's just so distasteful in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I'm, if you, if you look at ivermectin on Wikipedia, (laughs) there's a heading now that's COVID-19 misinformation. And I'll just read this to you guys, and then we'll talk about what we know about ivermectin, which is not complete yet. Ivermectin has been pushed by right-wing politicians and activists, promoting it as a supposed COVID treatment. Misinformation about ivermectin's efficacy spread widely on social media, fueled by publications that have since been retracted. That's not entirely true. There are some uh, ivermectin studies that have been retracted, but certainly not all of them. Misleading, quote, meta-analyses, websites with substandard methods and conspiracy theories about efforts by government scientists to, quote unquote, suppress the evidence. In response to widespread misuse, the US Food and Drug Administration, US CDC, WHO, AMA, American Pharmacists Association, American Society for Health Systems Pharmacists issued statements in 2021. Warning that ivermectin is not approved or authorized treatment for the prevention of COVID, and advised against its use for that purpose outside of clinical trials. Again, we're kind of back to off-label use. Um, on September 1st, 2021, health experts from the United States expressed concerns from reports of sharp increases in outpatient prescribing and dispensing of ivermectin with respect to levels before the pandemic. These experts explained that CDC has not authorized or approved ivermectin for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19. So, of course, as we know, not surprisingly, even even Wikipedia has been you know, sort of influenced by this, calling it, um, you know, these, these are right-wing conspiracy theorists uh, saying that it's being suppressed. And I find that to be also a little bit interesting because I think Dr. Corey's raised a lot of questions and, and we'll get it to the studies in a moment, but um, why, why is ivermectin really being suppressed? And I think that we'll see that we don't have all of the evidence we need for ivermectin. And certainly uh, some of the studies are heter- heterogeneous, the populations are heterogeneous, uh, there are some pop studies that have been retracted, but there are still some studies that stand that, that suggest promise for a disease that um, is hurting a lot of people. And, and yet, as you discovered with your uncle, and maybe we can tell that story at the end of this discussion, it's very hard to get ivermectin for someone in the ICU, even when they may, they may be on death's door. So And then just this whole media outcry against it, and to say that, that we're right-wing conspiracy theorists, you and I, because we're suggesting, is it possible that Merck doesn't want people to use ivermectin and that Merck won't provide ivermectin with this bacteria. So Merck is not allowing anyone to use streptomyces, the streptomyces bacteria to make ivermectin right now at all. Uh, Is it possible that that is happening because Merck and I believe Merck is collaborating with another pharmaceutical company and I forget which one to make a COVID drug that will be on patent, that will not be generic and that will make a lot more money. So that's, I think, an interesting question to raise. Like, is that possible that's happening? Yes, it is. Um, Do we know what's happening? Absolutely not. But the fact that Merck has in the past donated all of the doses that we need for treatment of lymphatic filariasis and river blindness to Africans, they donated all those doses and yet they've been completely unwilling to, um, I think, participate in any way in the discussion about ivermectin in the pandemic is is suspect.
1: Yeah, it's Pfizer and Merck and They're teaming up. It says here, this was six days ago. If you just type in a twice a day COVID pill is what it's called. And it says here that Pfizer and Merck are working on developing a twice daily COVID pill to treat it. And when I talked to Dr. Corey about it, And I'll refer to him, because like I said, he's the guru, like he's the guy that's going to say far more than ivermectin. I'll I'll share while I'm here, I'll share like some hands on stories that I have and kind of my experience with it and my personal experience taking it. I'll share that. But he's the expert because he's going to tell you what he's seeing in the ICU, how it's changing things. But anyway, yeah. So so it's uh, yeah. Pfizer. And Merck. They're the one teaming up to make this twice a day COVID pill, which many are suspecting it's just going to be ivermectin with a slight change in the molecule to where then it's able to be patentable. And then therefore it's not $3 a pill. It's say 300 or in the case of like remdesivir, $3,000 a dose. I did not
0: know that Evan, that I did not know that it was an analog of ivermectin <laughs>
1: Well, it could be. I don't know. I think that there's discussion of it. I don't know if that's like proven yet, but there's a lot of people suspecting it. All the people I've talked to said they're going to change one molecule, just like we've seen in the news that glyphosate is now going to be either discontinued or they're not going to produce glyphosate, right? Bayer's faced, the Bayer who purchased Monsanto, they're facing a ton of pushback. They've had countless lawsuits against people saying that they've got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and other cancers due to glyphosate exposure. So now everyone is celebrating the news. They're going to pull glyphosate from the shelves by 2023. Uh, but I talked with Stephanie Sinniff who's a PhD researcher, and I asked her about that news. And she goes, yeah, they're probably just doing analog. They'll change the molecule. It'll be remarketed, rebranded under a new name, but it'll be just as bad, if not worse than the original molecule of glyphosate. So we see this thing all the time. And uh, let me just show you this message real quick. This is kind of the behind the scenes here. Uh, this was from a, a doctor who I was working with through a telemedicine company. And this is when I was trying to get ivermectin for uh, for for my for myself. And she said, due to the immediate news release from the Medic- Mer- American Medical Association Pharmacist Society of Health Pharmacists, they've instructed all physicians to stop prescribing it for COVID and COVID-related instances, as well as... Pharmacists to stop dispensing. I must adhere to this governing body's mandate and cease with all prescribing of it. At this point, if you haven't received your ivermectin, I will cancel and refund your money. I was trying to keep people off Amazon and out of the farm animal stores. Now these organizations are just driving them back there. So that was the person I was working with, and fortunately, they had already shipped it. So I did receive it, and I got it before this happened, but this is what's happening kind of behind the scenes, and so I was referring, because I'm not a medical doctor, and I don't prescribe, and I can't prescribe. I was referring a lot of people to these telemedicine websites, because- as many people are saying, you need to have like a stash, like you need to have a first aid kit, just like you have a first aid kit for cuts and scrapes and bruises. Now, I like the idea of having like a COVID first aid kit. And in my COVID first aid kit, there is ivermectin, there's various forms of glutathione and N acetylcysteine, which in acetylcysteine has been banned from Amazon. It's now removed. I still sell it because with my you know, practitioner credentials were able to manufacture professional versions of it, but NAC is gone. But but that's in the stash: glutathione, NAC, vitamin C, ivermectin, zinc, and then nebulizers. So I know I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit, but I, I mentioned in the beginning that I was able to keep people off uh, the the hospital route, and I want to just talk about that for a minute, if I may. And what happened was we had a woman who a pulse oximeter would also be good to have in your your first aid kit, if you will, and so we had a female who was seeing the pulse oximeter drop. Her numbers were, were dipping, dipping, dipping. She suspected she had COVID. And there's a company called Fair Naturals. I'm not associated with them. I don't make a penny from this. There's a company called Fair Naturals. They make a reduced glutathione with sodium bicarbonate. And you can mix that. That's designed for inhalation. It's mixed with saline solution, give or take one to three milliliters of saline. That's put into a nebulizer and you breathe it in. And within two doses of that, we're talking very, very small, a couple hundred milligrams of glutathione total. It only takes about maybe three minutes for this therapy to breathe in your full dose. Within two doses of that, her chest tightness, her breathing issues, you know, the shortness of breath and her low oxygen completely reversed. And she was like literally back to 99% oxygen saturation after just two doses of that. And I first came across this from the guy, Dr. Richard Horowitz, who's written many books about Lyme, why can't I get better? Or how can I get better? He's very famous for his work on Lyme disease. He had posted a story very early on, this is like March of 2020 on his Facebook page about how he had a female patient who once again was debating going into the ICU or the emergency room because of her issues. And her son was, I think he was in medical school, or maybe hadn't graduated yet. And he gave her one dose. It was in the ballpark of two grams, which is pretty hefty for glutathione. I usually only use 200 milligrams. He was using 2000. So that was two grams of glutathione and boom, within one dose, it turned her around. And I tried to talk with Dr. Corey about this. Some I said, man, if, if, if I can like help integrate some of these therapies, like glutathione, some of these other things, he, he just said, hey, when you go to like herbs and supplements, he's like, I just, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't go there. I don't, I don't know that. And I thought, man, just imagine What could we be doing with people clinically if we could stack, say, nebulized glutathione in acetylcysteine and ivermectin? What kind of benefit could we see then? Because he said with Delta, he still is seeing people, unfortunately, not survive even with ivermectin and some of these other protocols. Like there's still people dying even with ivermectin. So it's not that it's the miracle cure, but it, according to the C19 ivermectin website, you you mentioned the studies, want to get into some of it. Well- I haven't read a ton of these in isolation, I will tell you that. But I just look at the big numbers here, which is that there's an 86% improvement using ivermectin in 14 prophylaxis trials. He told that story on Joe Rogan's podcast about there were 700 doctors all taking it prophylactically, zero of them got COVID. You're seeing a 40% improvement in 22 late treatment trials. You're seeing a 58% improvement in 25 mortality results. So the pulmonologist who was working on my uncle he came into the to the room and said to my aunt who's a nurse he said oh so you're the you're the wife indicating that there's been some gossip and discussion about her because we had to go through a judge to get a court order to approve of this so I helped her craft a letter showing these studies we took all these numbers here we put all these numbers and we put these studies and the link to all this you know different analyses. We put it in a paper, we gave it to a judge, a judge immediately signed and said, yes, administer this medication. Then you go back to the hospital, you give them the court order. Once you give them the court order, they say none of the physicians in this hospital agree with this therapy. They They, they quote, do not believe there's any benefit. My aunt then says, I don't, what do you mean belief? There's 63 trials on this there's 31 randomized controlled trials what do you mean there's no like belief like this is science like belief doesn't exist when you have this amount of science and they said well we don't agree and so then she had to get a frontline doctor to create an inpatient prescription then magically guess what somehow the hospital had ivermectin all along and boom there it is and it gets administered
0: And it got administered pretty late to your uncle, unfortunately, right?
1: Yeah. Here's the problem going through all this politics. I mean, it took us almost five days of him being on a ventilator before we could even get to this point when really what should have happened if we were doing stuff based on science and based on really caring for people, he should have been administered that the first second he came into the, to the hospital, but instead it took five days of politics and court orders. And uh, then we had to get a sheriff. We literally had to get a hold of the sheriff's office to deliver the court order. I mean, I know I've been on a little bit of a ramble here, and I apologize, but I'm just trying to, I mean, this is all happening, like, now, and I'm in the midst of it, so I hope that I'm, like, making sense here.
0: It's really, it's really striking, Evan, so if you, yeah, let me see here, I want to show a couple things. Um, When I think about this as a physician, and just in case anybody's new to the podcast, like, I'm a board-certified physician I did residency, like, I'm an MD, I do this. Uh, mostly I podcast and write books these days because I feel like it's a better way to reach people, but this is, this is what I do. I'm not a critical care physician, but I'm a doctor. Um, when we're thinking about therapies and we're in the middle of a pandemic, we have a patient that's dying and, you know, whether they're vaccinated or not, we're treating them in a hospital because we're not Jimmy Kimmel and we're not being, you know, vaccine, you know, we're not being vaccine myopic. Um, you know, there are times, there are many times in the medical world that we use Treatments off-label. That's that's very very common to use things off-label. When you use a medication off-label, you think what are the risks and what are the benefits? It's like every other thing that we do in medicine. We have to have a conversation about the side effects and the potential benefits. And we say to the we say to the patient, these are the risks, these are the benefits. Do you want this therapy? Um, This is my recommendation. And, And but but the patient can decide. We're not doing that with any of these COVID patients now. We're not saying like. These are the studies with ivermectin, this is the risk, because let's just be honest, like the doses of ivermectin that are being recommended are, you know, 60, 70 milligrams per person, maybe, what have you seen, 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram um, in terms of dosing, which is higher than you use for river blindness or for lymphatic filariasis. And there are side effects to medications. this is something I've talked about widely in my book and other and all of my media that any molecule that's foreign to the human physiology, that's not like a vitamin. And even with vitamins, you can get side effects at high doses. Even with water, of course, you'll get side effects at high doses. So really with any molecule, there are side effects depending on doses. And though a molecule may do good things like ivermectin might, and we can talk about the potential putative mechanisms by which ivermectin may be acting, or other molecules may be acting a lot of I think the most efficacious therapy for SARS-CoV2 have to do with interfering with binding between the virus and the ACE, uh, ACE2 receptor, that, that sort of fusion uh, and binding of these epitope antigens on the virus to the ACE2 or where most of the effective therapies that happen. So molecules like ivermectin may actually be doing that, but they certainly will have other side effects in humans. So it's it's time for us to take a really legitimate look at this and say, um, what are, what are the actual risks versus benefits of this molecule and then start making some discussions. And I haven't seen a whole lot of discussion about that, but what I have seen are a couple of things. I've seen people saying, oh, well, the, we know the mechanism for uh, ivermectin is the important protein. The, I think it's like the import, one of the import proteins uh, in the virus. And actually a lot of people are suggesting that that's probably not the mechanism because that for that protein to be affected in cell culture negatively by ivermectin, the doses need to that the concentration needs to get up to 2.2 to 2.8 micromolar. And it doesn't look like we get close to that with these current doses of ivermectin. We're more in the nanomolar range with ivermectin right now. And so as Pierre Corey points out in a paper that I'll screen share in a moment, there are many other potential mechanisms for ivermectin that are not being considered because one of the critiques of ivermectin has been that, oh, we're not going to achieve doses that that we're achieving in these cell culture studies. Uh, you know, they're saying, oh, we need to have 2.2 to 2.8 micromolar of ivermectin, but there's a real possibility that that, that mechanism with the important protein is not actually what's going on. The other thing that I've seen a couple of times, which is a little bit concerning for me is things like this, like, um, the media kind of lashing onto these stories, you know, um, saying like, oh, people are overdosing on horse dewormer and then the media runs with it. Right. That stuff's really frustrating. I don't think we have, I haven't seen any really good analyses though. I would love to find some, um, about uh, about why you know how many side effects we are seeing with ivermectin, and of course, when we do see side effects with ivermectin, there's certainly there's a potential for the media to overblow this. Um, I will offer this paper for people to read if they would like. This is a this is a case um, from a physician saying the misleading clinical evidence and systematic reviews on ivermectin for COVID-19. This is going to be perhaps the opposite side of the story from Pierre Corey, uh, whose paper I'll show in a moment. But when you read this paper, what you find is that this physician is criticizing ivermectin based on many of the points that I shared, that, um, that the, the doses are too high, we can't achieve micromolar doses, uh, we're really getting nanomolar doses. And I think what this physician is pointing out is that, yep, some of the data for ivermectin is heterogeneous. And if you look at the C19 ivermectin website, some of that data is heterogeneous. And there are some studies, some RCTs that have been recalled, but not all of them. And just because one or two studies get recalled doesn't mean we throw it all out. It means that the media says, hey, we need more data and, and now there's this political fight about ivermectin. And so the, the main points that this offer, author offers against ivermectin are that the doses, we, we can't achieve the proper doses, which I think is obviated by, um, or at least argued against by the fact that there are other potential mechanisms of ivermectin beyond what we see in cell culture. And that cell culture doesn't always represent what happens in vivo, that there are other parts of the immune system that may be responding in a certain way that we may not see properly in cell culture. Because in cell culture... You're not going to have uh, innate immunity coming into play in the same way, and all of you know all of this. All of this immune symphony isn't going to look quite the same in cell culture. So, and then if you let actually me tell you this, the data, there are some pretty good there are some pretty good studies. Yeah,
1: let me tell you this: what I've seen though. So, like I said, I don't have the ICU experience uh, like Dr. Corey. He's got way more stories that 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 he will tell you, I'm sure. But what we've seen with my uncle, his CRP level was right around 20. Now, typically you look at a CRP level on somebody, you want less than 0.3. If you see a CRP level of, let's say two or three, you're getting into like some cardiac risk. If you get a CRP level of like five to 10, that's not good at all. A CRP level of a 20 is really bad. And in some of the papers on COVID and biomarkers, the people who are dying their CRP level is an average of 39. So CRP level is kind of a marker for systemic inflammation. And I will just tell you this, what we've seen with my uncle is just after two doses, he's been given two doses of ivermectin at a 0.6 milligram per kilogram dose. In two doses, his CRP level went from a 20 down to a three. I think it was actually less than a three. And his D-dimer which is an indicator of clotting. When you have the breakdown of clots, you're going to see D-dimer elevated. This is something a lot of people test for when they're worried about strokes and stuff. His D-dimer dropped a thousand points, indicating that he is clotting much, much less. A thousand points less of D-dimer. His ferritin level, which is another indicator for inflammation, dropped over 2000 points with two doses. Now, can we say that that is what did it? I don't care. I care that the numbers are better. Now, here's, here's one other thing that just really grinds my gears. So, you know, we're going through all this with the judge and the sheriff and the court order and da da da. And would you believe in the middle of all this, they come into his room and they say, Hey, we've got something else to offer instead of ivermectin. Would you like to try it? And my aunt says, Okay, what is that? Well, it's Danny Copan. It's a study drug, meaning he might not even get this drug because he might get sugar pill because this is a study. So we need to give some people placebo and we need to give some people this drug. And guess what? This drug is not approved by the FDA to treat COVID-19, but they gave us permission to test it in this study. And I don't even understand the mechanism of this. I don't even know how or what. I mean, it causes abnormal results on liver function test. Like there's only been like three other people that have had issue. I mean, how many people have they even used this on? It says here so far, 266 people has is how many people have taken it versus, as you mentioned, ivermectin billion with a B billions of doses have been administered. I can only find 266 people have completed this drug and this is what they want to give them. It's like, okay, wait a second. Let me get this right. So we've got a medication over here, medication A. Let's forget the name about it for a second. We've got medication A. It's been used for 50 plus years. Billions of doses have been administered. Extremely low risk profile. What did I say? 62, 63 studies, I think, on it now. We've got X amount. You know, everything is, is greater than 40% or above reduction in long-term issues and death and mortality and blah, blah, blah. We don't believe there's any benefit to that. But here's this other drug we have no clue because we haven't even had a 1000 people take it yet it may or may not work and we may or may not even give him that it could just be a sugar pill. Would you rather have that it's like really and and I could take it and here's one more crazy thing and then I'll maybe stop ranting vitamin C. That's part of Dr. Corey and uh, Dr. Paul Merrick and all the frontline COVID critical care doctors. They're they're doing an amazing job with these protocols. They're publicly, publicly available for people. Look up the FLCCC. You can access this. When you're in the ICU, they're suggesting 25 grams of IV vitamin C. I have a woman come to my house and give me 20 grams of IV vitamin C for just various reasons. And it's like a piece of cake. It's like you you call her up. Hey, I can come at 1230. She shows up at my house, puts it in. I get my IV. I get my glutathione. I get whatever I want. But in the hospital, they said, we don't have enough evidence. We don't know enough about vitamin C. We have to have a special meeting. We got to round up all the doctors, everybody in the hospital. We have to have a special meeting to decide whether we believe vitamin C is beneficial enough to give it. And then they claim that there's no IV vitamin C available in the hospital. So now it's a special order. So now you're back to potentially, I'm not far enough into this yet to know if we're going to have to go to this extent, but now you might have to go get a, a court order just to get an IV vitamin C. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm just ranting.
0: Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're in it, man. You're in the thick of it. You have a family member who's in the ICU um, with a severe case of COVID and his chance of death is non-zero. <laughs> I suppose right. all of us have a chance of death that is non-zero in our life, but his his imminent chance of death is non-zero, and so you're thinking, let's weigh the risks and benefits of all the options so that this man can keep living and, you know, keep getting to see his wife and his kids, and and let's think about all these things. And we're running into a medical bureaucracy here, and and there is there is a little bit of absurdity among uh, among these physicians being reluctant to look at therapies that have been tested. I mean, IV vitamin C has been used very frequently. There are, of course, side effects to IV vitamin C too. If people have uh, G6PD deficiencies, it can cause hemolysis. So it's not a completely safe therapy either. But again, let's weigh the risks and the benefits. Let's look at the data for IV vitamin C and, and think about it. Certainly if my father ended up in the hospital, it's another therapy that I would consider as I would include glutathione. I was gonna mention this to you earlier. So One of the reasons this this video is not on YouTube is, I mean, at this point, my channel would have been destroyed on YouTube. We could never have talked about this on YouTube. Um, We've mentioned so many uh, lightning rods in this podcast already, but I had a podcast with Ben Lynch where we talked about glutathione, and this was over a year ago, looking at preliminary evidence for glutathione in COVID, and it was intriguing. Glutathione's pretty freaking safe. As we talked about, there's N-acetylcysteine, which is a precursor molecule. It's part of the Uh, it's really part of the, it's one of the rate limiting steps is the formation of N-acetylcysteine. And then two more amino acids are added to the cysteine to make glutathione. But I had a conversation with Ben Lynch that was removed from YouTube for even suggesting that glutathione could be effective or might be used for for COVID or for COVID prevention, or you might wanna optimize your oxidative reductive status. Now, this is all just so crazy to me that, that these therapies that are very safe are, are being limited from people uh, when they've been available for the last few decades. When I was in residency, I took glutathione occasionally, and I thought, wow, this stuff made me feel good. I didn't like to take it long-term, and I wouldn't recommend people take glutathione long-term, but acutely, let's think about glutathione nebulized. Let's think about oral glutathione. Let's think about IV glutathione for COVID, but there really has been a lot of, in my opinion, closed-minded um, attention. There's been a lot of closed-mindedness. There's been a lot of a real lack of openness to other therapies uh, in the midst of this pandemic, and I think that a lot of people have suffered. And also, as people know, there's been a clear lack, an incredible sin of omission around health and metabolic health and things like this, and perhaps we'll return to that at the end of this podcast. But um, I wanted to show people one of the papers from the, the C19 ivermectin website. I found this one to be particularly interesting, Um, We'll put a link in the show notes. So this is a review of the emerging evidence demonstrating the efficacy of ivermectin in the prophylaxis and treatment of COVID-19. Pierre Corey is the first author, but um, this is a meta-analysis based on 18 randomized controlled trials of ivermectin. Uh, It found large statistically significant reductions in mortality, time to clinical recovery, time to viral clearance. Um, There are numerous other Um, controlled prophylaxis trials that report significantly reduced risks of contracting COVID-19 in this study with the regular use of COVID-19. And interestingly in this paper as well, they had many examples of ivermectin distribution campaigns that were sort of uh, natural experiments leading to rapid population-wide decreases in morbidity and mortality. So there's a lot of points of evidence here (laughs) that sort of point in the right direction. Um, it's a great paper. It's really worth a read. It starts off with history. They do talk about studies suggesting that since 2012, a number of cellular studies have demonstrated that ivermectin has antiviral properties <laughs> against RNA viruses. Most people listening to this will know that the SARS-CoV-2 is a positive-stranded, uh, it's a positive single-stranded RNA virus, and there are studies from 2012 showing that ivermectin has some antiviral activity against. Influenza, Zika, HIV, dengue, and SARS-CoV-2. That's interesting. So there's it's not like there's no precedent for this molecule. And, and I guess this is this the jokes on Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, and Stephen Colbert. Like, here's a this is a horse medication, right? Oh, wait, we've been studying it in humans and or other, we've been showing that it's an antiviral medication, at least a putative, a hypothetical antiviral medication for almost 20 or 10 years, excuse me. That's interesting. And Pierre-Corey goes on to make the points that I mentioned earlier that um, there are uh, alternative mechanisms for ivermectin uh, that may explain the clinical effects observed, such as competitive binding of ivermectin with the receptor binding region of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, um, as proposed in six molecular modeling studies. So the high affinity uh, of binding of ivermectin to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein could limit binding in... Uh, in either to either the ACE2 receptor or the sialic acid receptors, respectively, uh, preventing cellular entry of the virus or preventing hemagglutination. So, these, these are mechanisms that we don't even know what dose of ivermectin may be effective for this. The doses that are being used now, like we talked about, are 0.4, 0.6 milligrams per kilogram, uh, which are higher than we have used for liver blindness and lymphatic filariasis. But there's a lot here that remains to be seen. So, without belaboring the study, I'll let people go and read it. Um, he does mention a number of the RCTs. There's a forest plot here of a number of the RCTs. I will mention that, that this study, the el Ghazar study, has been retracted, but that these other RCTs that he has here have not been retracted. And as you can see, um, this group of RCTs that he mentions does favor uh, ivermectin over the control. None of these effects are, like we said, are a panacea. It's just another potentially effective therapy for humans. And it's not to say that if you get ivermectin, you won't suffer a severe, course, case of COVID. Uh, It's not to say that if you take ivermectin, someone in the hospital may get ivermectin and may still die, and that's a tragedy, but um, there is reasonable data that should be more considered. These are particularly interesting. These are just natural experiments of um, comparison of case counts decreasing among Brazilian cities with and without uh, ivermectin distribution campaigns. And I believe these Brazilian studies, these ivermectin might have been distributed um, for um, either either COVID or for um, antiparasitic uses, but you can see that in, these are neighboring cities with similar populations. And in, in all three of these cases, again, this is observational, so it's subject to all sorts of potential bias or cherry picking, but it's an intriguing hypothesis that should be pursued further. In all of these studies, the reduction in cases, the decline in cases was much higher in the cities that got ivermectin. You can see the same thing in the death rates among neighboring regions in Brazil. Um, and here, you know, there's an RCT in India. So let yeah, more on that.
1: Yeah. yeah. More on that reduction. So, uh, this guy, he's, he's actually do, doing some talks now with, uh, Corey and Merrick, and he actually had that in a graph, which made it far more mind-blowing to see his name is Dr. Flavio, forget his last name. Super cool dude. Uh, but he did one of those frontline talks the other day and I was watching it and he was discussing how they ran, they not randomly, but they routinely take ivermectin because, there's only like one city in Brazil where you can drink the tap water because the rest of it is likely contaminated with parasites. So I do think you're right. I think it was just as like a public health measure because of the contamination of the water that they were taking the ivermectin. And then he compared it to the cities who didn't get it. And the rates of drop in the ivermectin versus the non-ivermectin people, it was astounding. And the percentage of death was almost like 5% difference. So you'll have to look back at his front link video, with Dr. Flavio, but it was something around like 7.5% death rate in the non-ivermectin cities, the ivermectin administered cities. It was like a 2% death rate. We're talking massive. When you look at the graphs and you visualize this, it's mind-blowing. And I just got a text as we're recording here. They're refusing the, the IV vitamin C. She told them, please, because she's trying to save her husband's life and she said, Well, what do I do to get it? Apparently, it's going to be another court order. So she'll have to write a new letter, go back downtown, go to the court, ask for a judge, get another ruling, get another doctor, get another prescription for vitamin C. Like, wow. So
0: had a so, dose that you've gotten in your home, you
1: know. Yeah, I, I've I've had routinely and I feel great afterwards. And it does make you pee a little bit. Like you you do pee pretty quick after you take IV vitamin C. But beyond that, it's been amazing. And There's very good antioxidant potential, and they've been using IV vitamin C in China for COVID. Just type in China COVID vitamin C, and you'll see it is routinely being used in China. So, I feel like a lot of it is just me like complaining and like bitching about all this sucks and the system's rigged and look at these studies. How dumb can you be? So, I want to try to flip this thing here, if if I may, and just say, okay, let's focus on action steps. What should people be doing? Well, most importantly, they should be doing what you're telling people to do, which is you got to get your diet in order because if you're doing all these bad oils, you're doing these bad fats, you're doing excess nuts. And things that are going to damage the gut, whether it's oxalates, whether it's lectins, whether it's inflammatory oils—all these things are increasing the permeability in your tight junctions, creating leaky gut. And leaky gut is something that I talk about every day. But even gastroenterologists still deny the idea of leaky gut. They still act like leaky gut's almost like this fad, and it's like pseudoscience and it's fake and whatever, right? They act like leaky gut's just like this thing that that snake oil salesmen talk about, so they can sell you a leaky gut supplement. But in reality leaky gut is one of these predisposing factors that we now see in the literature that is driving severe outcomes in COVID. I'm not saying if you go and take out glutamine, that you're not going to end up with severe COVID. But what I'm saying is the literature is clear that leaky gut is the predisposing factor, just like it is for autoimmune disease. It's a predisposing factor to more severe outcomes. So if you're not already dialed in, stop listening and start acting so many people listen to 20 podcasts and watch all these videos and they're just like gurus in their head but they do nothing like i went out yesterday to a restaurant i had some chicken wings they were grilled they were delicious and i look around this is on a sunday for brunch And I took my wife and my children and I look around and everybody's drinking mimosas and Bloody Marys and they're doing pretzels with nacho cheese and they're doing cinnamon donut bites and dipping it in icing. And then they get a like BLT sandwich with like garbage lettuce. Who wants to eat lettuce with like six pieces of bread on it? And they're like all hundred pounds overweight. But if you go up to those people and you ask them, Hey, do you want to get really, really sick? from covid they'd say no way I don't want to get sick at all and I'd be like okay well do you know that the alcohol is screwing up your your histamine response and your immune system and affecting your gut barrier do you know this gluten is increasing a protein called zonulin which then acts like a zipper and unzips the tight junctions in your gut allowing the pathogen to get into your bloodstream do you know that these oils are driving this and I don't know do they know do they not know I mean who knows
0: it's a tough one, man. I had friends visit me this weekend. Uh, I'm in Austin right now and uh, they said they stopped at Bucky's which is a gas station, <laughs> the Texas the Texas um, institution, I suppose. and they they were just kind of struck like by the people and I think in, in my friend group and in, in our tribe in our community, we, we get it and we can encourage each other and community the importance of community is impossible to overemphasize when your friends eat healthy and that You see your friends eating a certain way and choosing to forego processed foods or soy seed oils or processed simple sugars. It's easier, but these people are there's still tons of people at gas stations, you know, eating absolute garbage. And um, it it is a it is a strange thing. Uh, It's it just I'm I'm still in disbelief. And I think, what do we have to do to get through these people? Um, but yeah, I love that we can bring it back to leaky gut. And then maybe I'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the overall COVID situation as we wrap this one up today.
1: You know, the healthiest thing you can get in a gas station. So these people that did go to Bucky's if they're like, okay, what do I do in a pinch? I got to eat something. I can't get the Paul's house right now and get the beautiful grass fed steak. What do I do? Honestly, my best recommendation is look for a quality beef jerky. Even if it's something that has like bad, like fake salts and stuff in it. If I could go and get elk jerky at a gas station. I'm going to get elk jerky. That's probably like my go-to.
0: I think you're right. And that's a great, that's a great takeaway for people. Like, If you're in, if you're in the, the driest of food deserts, what can you eat? I've had this conversation with a lot of people in the past that I believe you could eat reasonably well at fast food restaurants all across the United States. You can just go and get the hamburger patty with nothing else on it. I mean, I'm not defending or suggesting that people eat McDonald's or support that, that business model, but a McDonald's burger is 100% beef as far as I know, there's no additives, there's no soy or other garbage in there. Now the beef is not as high quality. And if people listen to last week's podcast with Stefan van Vliet, they'll know that, that grass feeding and grass finishing of beef and what the animal eats will significantly impact the, the, the nutritional content of that meat in many, many ways. Even the phytochemical content of that beef is affected by what the animal's eating. So certainly a McDonald's burger is going to be nutritionally uh, more bereft in, in some ways than a grass-fed, grass-finished burger. But th- any th- the point I think that we're both going to make here is that the food is available for humans. It's that we're making the wrong choices. People talk about food deserts and you can't get good food in the inner city or you can't get good food. There's all these fast food restaurants. And I think, you know, I should write a book about like how to be healthy eating a fast food diet 100, 365 days a year. And the point of the book would just be, hey, it's available to you all the time. Um, there's, no, there's no excuse. You, there's always a way to do this. It's just that as humans, I don't think that the importance of this has been really driven home for us enough. And I think this is a real, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is the, the, the most cardinal sin of omission during the current uh, pandemic is that this should have been a headline at every, every major media network, you know, and, and I'm sure they could find studies Eating a a day is going to increase your risk of dying of COVID from this much. You know, eating healthfully, choosing to remove processed foods from your diet may increase your risk of surviving COVID or may decrease your risk of severe COVID by X percent. Like those, we can, we can generate that kind of data. Like if we really wanted to motivate people to do this, it's possible. Um, I'm still waiting. And I've said this on the last couple of podcasts. So hopefully it's not overused, but I'm still waiting for the million dollar weight loss lottery. Um, I suppose there's that show Big Loser, but you know, show me, I'll be. I'll do a little happy dance when the state of Iowa or Michigan or whatever midwestern state or any state wants to do a million dollar lottery. They're doing million dollar vaccine lotteries. Let's do a million dollar fifty pound weight loss lottery and see what happens. You know how many people would lose fifty pounds if you said, "Hey, we're gonna. If you lose fifty pounds, we're gonna enter you in a lottery for a million dollars." I mean, I know. Well, where are need- the where are the FEMA agents going door to door saying, "You know, do you have any uh, impediments to you getting healthy?" do you understand what foods are most healthy and what foods are going to improve your health? And do you understand how processed food is a problem for you? And you know, where is Biden mandating that that all companies with more than 100 employees need to make strides toward a healthier metabolism? Where is Biden mandating that all employees need to have a fasting insulin? And if your fasting insulin is more than six or five, you, you're gonna be mandated to, to improve your health. Like if you really wanna protect yourself or your family. That's that's what we should be doing. And we can talk about the benefits of vaccination. I'm not saying they have no benefits. I'm just saying that that would be an incredibly valuable adjunct therapy. And essentially for suggesting that, I got kicked off Instagram. Hopefully everybody listening to this podcast knows I'm back on Instagram. The new handle is at carnivoremd2.0. Um, we'll see how long that one lasts. I have to be a little less controversial, but let's... I think I want to, yeah, yeah L- let ahead. me,
1: let me comment on a few things. You said, so the first thing, uh, knowing a farmer who actually sells his cattle to feedlots, guess what? All cows are grass fed. Yeah. Not all, not all the way, but I think a lot of us, because we feel like we need to be perfect. A lot of us, we do get afraid from that. And if you were in a McDonald's and that's the only thing you had for 500 miles, I think some people in our tribe would probably rather starve to death because they're like, no way am I eating that crap? All cows are grass fed. Now, not their whole life, but at least until they get out to the feedlot, they are grass fed. And I'll tell you, I've seen amazing, beautiful pastures here in Kentucky where these are grass fed cattle. They do end up going to a feedlot. They do get fed garbage, but you can't just from birth, from calving, you can't go from like milk to corn with a cow. They'll be too sick. They won't make it. It'll destroy their guts and they won't survive. So it's so, uh, so, so you made a great point, which is like, progress, not perfection. And if you're in a pinch, sometimes you might have to do something like that. Don't beat yourself up over it. Don't starve to death because you didn't want to eat 100% beef burger. And then on the mandate thing, I think that's that's super interesting idea. And it's kind of like, well, you know, there's this really this invasion of uh, personal like privacy and stuff, you know, like things that should be, I mean, even just due to HIPAA or whatever things that should be private are now like public conversation. Well, where's the pantry rates? I mean, I raided my grandmother's pantry years ago. I, I videotaped it. I was going to put it on my YouTube channel. It's kind of like an archive footage. But, but but I was like ranting on every item. Like, look at these honey buns. Look at these cinnamon rolls. Get this cereal out of here. Are you kidding me with this GMO gluten? Get Like, where's the raids on people's pantry? And then you're seeing stuff about fines in the media now for not following certain things well, where's the fines for you? I saw on your bank statement. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but there's now discussion of somehow, I don't even know who, but that your bank transactions are going to be tracked. It's like, well, then you need to be fined if you see McDonald's or Coca-Cola or whatever. It's like, okay, well then where's the fine for buying the 12 pack of Pepsi? If I'm going to get a fine for something else, then you need to find me for buying the Ho-Ho then, because... I'm now making myself sicker and then I'm increasing the healthcare cost of the country because now if I get sicker, then I need more medical care than someone who didn't eat the ho-hos. So like how, how, like if you want to play that game, well, the fines could be unlimited then for all these other decisions that are driving our health in the wrong direction, which are going to lead to a worse outcome.
0: There's a lot of logical fallacies in what we're doing right now. You know, people are feeling emboldened to even suggest not treating the unvaccinated. Well, Does that mean we're not going to treat somebody that's obese? We're not going to treat somebody that's diabetic. We're not going to treat somebody that, you know, where do we draw the line? You're not going to treat somebody that has any disease of lifestyle. You're not going to treat a smoker. Uh, You're not going to treat somebody that has alcoholic liver disease. Uh, This is clearly a, a horribly dismal future for humans that begins to resemble eugenics in some way. So, so what
1: about like, if you take a dose of antibiotics and we know that then you've destroyed some of the beneficial bacteria in your gut, therefore you've created this dysbiosis situation. Like a lot of people come to me clinically after they, let's say they got a dental procedure done. They took a round of antibiotics and then they ended up with candida overgrowth or some other bacterial overgrowth. Those are the people who reach out and then we'll run stool testing. We'll run urine testing. We'll see what's going on and then we'll create an herbal protocol. Usually I'm using antimicrobial herbs like barberry and bearberry and oregano and thyme and olive leaf and other things in combination with Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a beneficial yeast, we use beneficial probiotics, and we and we resettle that, like that's, really the preventative approach that you should be doing so I know if some people listen to this and they're kind of like well well, this is like doom and gloom and I feel disempowered do not feel disempowered you should feel empowered this is an incredible time we have so much information it's a little harder because like look at Dr. Paul who gets censored like he's just sharing stuff and asking questions I didn't I know you said there was some lightning bolts I didn't see anything that was lightning bolts. Those were good questions that everyone should be asking. I saw nothing wrong with any of it. Like no matter what side you're on, like these are valid questions that should be able to be asked. So it's a little harder to find the information, but if you're here listening, you found it. Get your gut in good shape, get your diet clean. If you've taken antibiotics, we've got to get you on some professional probiotics. If you've got diarrhea, constipation, irritable bowel, if you're seeing blood in the stool, if you've got burping, if you get fatigued after your meals, that's a sign you've probably got hypochlorhydria. we need to work on acid and enzymes. If you have skin issues, if you have depression, anxiety, fatigue, heart palpitations, blood pressure issues, there's likely some level of dysfunction in your gut. And I can't tell you right this second exactly what it is. But it's likely some combination of pathogenic bacterial overgrowth, candida, parasites, worms, gut inflammation, maybe leaky gut is in the mix, because all these pathogens release lipopolysaccharides and endotoxin and other things which take this tight junction, they pull it apart and allow undigested food particles, or in the case of this conversation, COVID-2 molecules to enter the bloodstream. And then that really sets you up for worse outcomes. So if you're thinking like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? Well, you got to get your diet right, get your gut right. I mean, it's It's crazy to me that I've been like ranting about that for this long, 10 years of doing my podcast. And now I'm still saying the same thing, but I'm just saying it in different contexts now, but it's still the same message. It always has been.
0: And I love that we're bringing it full circle back to the leaky gut. You're reminding me that I wanted to mention a couple of things. Um, I, I think that it's important for people to know what causes leaky gut. You mentioned a lot of those factors. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that glyphosate is not great for your gut. It's essentially ubiquitous today, so it's hard to avoid, but certainly avoid as much as you can. Uh, Overuse of antibiotics, using antibiotics in general is not going to be a good thing. You mentioned lectins and foods, and this is my big one. Uh, I I do think that some of the main problems with the more toxic plant foods, if people are not familiar with what I've talked about in terms of a plant toxicity spectrum, please check us out at heartandsoil.co. You can email us radicalhealth at heartandsoil.co to get an animal-based infographic. I've done lots of podcasts on animal-based diets, but I do think that the leaves, roots, stems, and seeds of plants, like we mentioned, the nuts, grains, seeds, and legumes are going to have things in them that could potentially damage your gut. And a lot of times when I talk about quote-unquote vegetables being possibly bad for humans, people poo-poo this. And that's a funny, that's a you know, maybe an accidental pun at this moment. But um, the real real hypothesis here, which I think has a lot of weight, is that those are the parts of the plants that are most highly defended. And they're not in the business of nourishing you. They're in the business of making more plants and spreading their DNA. And if you eat a lot of those parts of plants, it is possible that that is damaging your gut epithelium. If you read my book, The Carnivore Code, I've said this before, guys, I've got a cookbook coming out in December. You can pre-order that one on Amazon or wherever you want to go. Um, I talk about this repeatedly in there that there are lectins in beans and other foods. These most of defended plant parts. We know that they're in things like peanuts, which is a legume. Uh, they're in nuts. They're in many other foods that can end up damaging the gut. We see them in circulation. So you can see peanut lectin in the blood in people who eat peanuts. Well, how did it get there? I have to go through your gut. It's not supposed to do that. Like it's a bad thing. Uh, bean lectins, peanut. Like these, these are all really damaging for the gut. So I I think that. This hasn't been talked about enough, and I haven't talked about it in a long time in the podcast, but I do have a lot of concern that many of these more toxic parts of plants do create leakiness to the gut, and that that is the, another key picture of this. You can prevent it, you can, you can work with somebody like Evan, you can work with Evan if you're lucky enough to, and, and, and rehabilitate, but if you don't change your diet and you don't prioritize things like meat and organs, either fresh or desiccated organs like we make at in soil, and you don't eat plant foods that are less toxic, and for me, that's fruit rather than leaves, stems, and roots, uh, and seeds, which is nuts, seeds, grains, and legumes, you're still, I think, going to be putting in more uh, toxins into your gut and creating more damage to that gut epithelium than you want to. And as we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, that can have implications for all sorts of viral illnesses potentially, including SARS-CoV-2. So hopefully that's a little encapsulated view on leaky gut. Um, Well, let me add this too
1: real quick. Yeah. So, so if you have candida and all these bacteria, well well let me, let me clarify because I don't want to confuse people. Candida specifically will drive up oxalic acid. Hmm. So when we're looking at organic acids test and we're looking at someone and they're all worried about oxalates and lectins and all of that, and they're like, well, Evan, I'm not eating anything with oxalates. I've looked at the high oxalate food list and you know let's say they, they listen to your podcast, yeah, I've looked into Dr. Paul's work, I'm not doing any of this crap why are my oxalates so high? Well, we know Candida will drive up those oxalates too. So that's another reason that you have to fix that. And I would say seven out of every 10 people that I've run organic acids test on have elevated arabinose or tartaric acid or both, which are the gases, the byproducts of Candida. So Candida overgrowth is insanely common. And even the CDC, for example, they are even freaking out about Candida now, which once again, Candida has been kind of poo-pooed, right? It's been like one of these like Oh, whatever, Candida, but it's like, they're like, holy crap, because the antifungal medications that they used to use for Candida are not working anymore. Just like we have antibiotic resistant bugs. We now have antifungal resistant fungus or fungi. So the cool thing is birds still work. So, you know, you got to fix Candida though, because it is going to drive all that, but yeah, leaky gut is like, I don't know. It's, it's not a buzzword guys. It's real. And Oh, <laughs> And, and, sure. I, and I and I think, I think I gave you this testimonial. Forgive me if I already said this, but I'm going to tell you again, if I told you once before, so my wife is on your organs and after her menstrual cycle, she would end up a little bit depleted. Like she'd have like a couple of days where she's like really got to recover since doing the organs. When her cycle stops, she's back in business. There's no like, Oh honey, I'm tired. It's like, boom, she's back in business. So it's just cycle done back to life cycle done when before it was like cycle uh, i can't mop the floor today i'm too tired hey can you help out with the dishes hey can you help with the kids i'm too tired like it literally has just deleted that it's incredible
0: that's amazing which supplements are she taking from us
1: uh, right now she's got the the heart of the warrior that she's doing
0: i love it that one's got liver and heart in it um yeah i, I we will have to come back and do a third oh podcast. crap Oh, oh no.
1: Okay. All right. Okay. I almost, so, so this is for I got, our more. Podcast. We got a little more. Okay. Okay. So, so, so this is for your this is you're going to come back on my podcast, because I have a whole list of questions. I pulled my people and there's a whole list of questions. So I forgot we're going to do a part two on my show as well. So people have to check that out, because I've got a whole list of questions that people were asking a lot about organs, no surprise. But I think I already know a lot of your answers. And it's been really exciting to see firsthand how well my wife has done. So I just encourage people like if you're like, I'm depleted. I feel depleted. I don't know exactly what's going on. Maybe there are some hormone issues. Maybe there are some gut issues, which affect the lungs, which affect the thyroid, which affect the brain, which affect the skin. Maybe you don't know all the solution in your gut right now. But at a minimum, I think if you can integrate some of these organs into your life, you're gonna you're gonna have some change. And even if you don't have change, because you're so deep in the rabbit hole that you really need help to get out of that that trench you're in. Well, at least you're going to be providing things that might help you can't hurt you at a bare
0: minimum. Absolutely, and I want to I want to touch on these last few COVID thoughts as we wrap up this podcast, um, and and this will be a little bit of a rabbit hole. So, recently Joe Biden said it's not about your personal choice. It's about protecting those around you. What does that not even mean? Me- I saw
1: I saw something you said that it's like it's not even about freedom or something yes. too. And I'm like, how do I even interpret? I don't even know how to interpret these messages anymore.
0: It was it was absolutely baseless rhetoric. Um, he's got a number of lawsuits coming at him, but he said, it's not about your personal freedom. It's not about you. It's about protecting those around you. And, and I just want to point out a few things to people that, that we're beginning to be very clear about. And again, this is stuff that we could never talk about on YouTube. So thankfully, you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, or Rumble. But there's, there's a lot of emerging evidence from uh, UK data that has been summarized in a really, really good series of posts that I sent to Evan that I would encourage you guys to read. This is a pseudonymous uh, person writing on Substack called Elgato Malo. Uh, this post is called Are COVID Vaccines Working? And if you read this post, the takeaways are this that if you, he does some analyses, but when you look at this post, um, you will find that the author of this study, and this is uh, the author of this thing, is quite interesting. He's, he's looking at vaccine efficacy and based on his analysis, which everything I've read in here seems very reasonable to me, based on the UK data, there is no protection at all in cases for vaccine efficacy. And there is a possibility that vaccines worsen the spread of COVID. And we'll talk about why. Now, I do want to say that on emergency care, the data is consistent with protection. So this is to say that there is vaccine efficacy for emergency care, the need for emergency care. There is vaccine efficacy on the need for overnight hospital stay. There is vaccine efficacy for deaths, but There is no solid evidence that I have seen anywhere, especially this analysis to suggest that based on the UK data, which is the most assiduously collected data. And he did a very careful analysis that there is no data to suggest that there's actually any change in cases, which to me means Biden is a liar because there is no, you cannot make a case that you are protecting anyone else from the virus if you get vaccinated, if there is no change in the cases. This is to say that if you are vaccinated, you can still get COVID. You can still shed COVID. And there is very good evidence that you still shed COVID at the same rate as somebody that is unvaccinated. Now, if you get vaccinated, and I think that is a very reasonable choice my father's vaccinated, my mother's vaccinated, my sister's vaccinated. I am not vaccinated. I've had COVID. I am naturally immunized. Um, but uh, there is a very good point, case based on these studies and the UK data that if you get the vaccine, you are less likely to need emergency care, you are less likely to be hospitalized, and you are less likely to die from COVID. If you are in any population, right? Let's just say that. Let's give it all the benefit of the doubt. But there is no evidence that the vaccine is going to slow the spread of COVID. So it's an individual decision. And this to me is an infringement on personal rights, constitutional rights, and our own agency in our health, our own freedom and sovereignty to make our decisions. And again, this is something I can say on the podcast that I can't say anywhere else. I certainly can't say this on Instagram guys. I have had COVID. I am metabolically healthy. You can listen to my controversial thoughts video about metabolic health. My fasting insulin is less than three. My C-peptide is less than 0.5. My HSCRP is undetectable, and I've worn a continuous glucose monitor from Nutrisense multiple times. There's no reason that I believe that I should get vaccinated or that I should be forced or coerced or mandated to be vaccinated. And I believe that you all have the same choice to make in your lives. If new data comes out suggesting that Uh, that that something changes, then I would reconsider that discussion. But I think that for me, the risks of vaccination outweigh the benefits. And especially with this data in mind, that I am no less likely to spread COVID if I am unvaccinated, especially having had COVID, than I am if I'm vaccinated. means that how am I protecting anyone (laughs) if I get vaccinated? To use that as a a wedge, to use that as a fulcrum with which to mandate vaccines suggests an, an incomplete understanding of the science. And let's just be honest, Joe Biden is rapidly headed toward dementia, which is quite a sad case. I don't think he's eaten enough meat in his life. Um, it's a very bad thing. Maybe he needs some of our supplements from hardened soil. But I want to show another post from this same um, guy, and then I'll let you comment, Evan. And this one is very interesting. Leaky vaccines, super spreaders, and variant acceleration. Uh, this is a hypothesis, but it is quite compelling. And The idea is that when you have a non-sterilizing vaccine, which we clearly know the current crop of COVID vaccinations are, that you may make super spreaders out of those who are vaccinated and asymptomatic who can still spread COVID. And as it says here, these vaccines do not stop the spread. We've seen that, that's proven. Uh, They do not provide sterilizing immunity. Even the CDC has said that. Uh, Lots of hard data supports it. Efficacy of the vaccines is waning. Even Eric Topol, who is often thought as uh, of a have uh, thought of as a very conservative person of the vaccine has acknowledged that um, the diagnosis and denial of waning immunity from Delta infections um, is is significant. Um, In Israel, they issued a report showing a marked decline in the mRNA vaccine from Pfizer protection versus Delta, down to 40%. That was met with disbelief. Um, But it's been corroborated multiple times. And this is the kind of stuff that I got deleted from Instagram for talking about, guys. If you believe that Instagram is in any way, shape, or form protecting you from misinformation, I would say that uh, they are just protecting you from narratives that counter theirs. If you look at this part of this quote or this graphic, which I think is the clincher, of unvaccinated in the red and vaccinated in the green. The CT value is the copy threshold, which is a PCR metric that gives us a sense of how much virus is being shed. They are essentially equivalent for the first six to eight days within the error bars. If you really wanna be stickler, you could say at least the first six to seven days for which many people are asymptomatic. The spread for the first six to eight days is the same, whether you are unvaccinated or vaccinated. Therefore, and that would further corroborate the notion that being vaccinated doesn't change the spread of this virus at all and may even be worsening it. Now, as I said earlier, it's very clear that if you're vaccinated and you're at risk of going to the hospital, that will be protective. I'm frankly happy that my father got the vaccine. He's not been able to change his life, but for the rest of us, we should have a sovereignty. We should have a choice. We shouldn't be mandating these vaccines. So all of that's really been on my like heart and mind, and I wanted to just get it in there. Uh, I apologize that I sort of ranted there, Evan, and, and didn't give you a chance to speak, but I'll let you respond.
1: Don't be sorry at all. So, this was interesting. I don't watch CNN, but uh, apparently, Fauci was on CNN talking to the famous Dr. Sanjay Gupta the other day. And Dr. Gupta actually brought up that Israel study about natural immunity. I'm sure you've seen it. Yes. And basically, the headline was that natural immunity provides an insane amount of protection, even better than the vaccines and so gupta says this flat out i'm like wow cnn's going to publish him saying the israel study aren't people going to look into the israel study and learn the truth wow and so he asked him about people who like dr gupta already had covid just like me i had covid last year and i did think that i talked early but i never i alluded to it in the beginning of the podcast i didn't say it until now I did believe that I had some post-COVID issues. So about March of this year, and then even up until like a month ago, I did have some tight chest feeling. I feel like I couldn't get a full breath of air. My oxygen saturation was perfect, but I did feel like I had a bear grabbing grabbing me, like hugging me. And I did take several doses of ivermectin and it completely eliminated it along with the side benefit that my energy level has tripled. I did not realize how exhausted I was there is some discussion of chronic fatigue. We see this a lot in post-viral issues. We see a lot of post-viral uh, chronic fatigue with Epstein-Barr and other type of infections. This idea of a, uh, like a post-infection chronic fatigue syndrome is very common. So it's no surprise that we're seeing a massive increase in these CFS diagnoses after COVID. I didn't realize I probably had chronic fatigue. Like I probably could have fit the diagnosis of it because I was so exhausted, but I was so used to it. And I blamed it on being a father and you know practitioner and taking heavy cases and da, da, da. But after those doses, my energy levels tripled. So I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you what my experience was. And that's my experience. But anyway, Dr. Fauci replies to Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And he asked the question of right here. The study says maybe even more protection than the vaccine. Should they also get the vaccine? How do you make the case? Fauci's response, you know, that's a really good point. I don't have a firm answer for you on that. So even Fauci himself doesn't have an answer on why someone who had COVID should get the vaccine. So I'll just leave it at that. And then the other thing I saw in which was becoming somewhat mainstream news is there's this idea of what's called superhuman immunity. And that if you get double jabbed after a COVID infection, you may turbocharge your immune system. And that if you get two doses of either Pfizer or Moderna, and some people's immune systems ramp up to produce a vast number of flexible antibodies, and they're calling this superhuman immunity. I don't know what to say.
0: Media is unreal, man. The media is unreal. Like,
1: I, I... S- superhuman immunity. How about like glutathione, vitamin C? We know <laughs> that in the ICU, we know. Get this. I think we talked about this before. Did you know ninety-seven percent? Unless there's a new paper that says it oh, was the last paper I saw 97% of people in the ICU with COVID had a vitamin D insufficiency. And we saw there was a graph, very, very great paper that came out. No one with a vitamin D level above 30 was dying. All of the critically ill people had critically low vitamin D in the teens and the 20s, sometimes even in the single digits, that single predictor, for mortality alone is not on the mainstream television. If you're in the 60 to 80 nanogram range of vitamin D, you you essentially eliminate the possibility of mortality, according to these papers. I'm not saying that. Please (laughs) don't put me on freaking CNN. I'm not saying that. The study says that.
0: It's, you know what, Evan, I got Uh, one of the, one of the posts that I'd done in November of 2020 got removed on Instagram for saying something like that before my account got deleted to the effect of vitamin D. We know that vitamin D is a huge risk factor, yada, yada. You know, I agree. I, I, I love what you're saying there. Superhuman immunity, you know, eat, eat, eat organs, either fresh or desiccated, eat meat, eat the least toxic plant foods, go in the sun, play with your kids, sleep every night, have a reasonable circadian rhythm. Don't take excess antibiotics. That's superhuman immunity. And I'm not saying that's going to protect everyone in the world from COVID. You're still going to get it. I think everybody's going to get it because the virus is going to continue. There are a million variants now. There's Delta, there's Mu, there's Lambda. Who knows what's coming? Uh, One of the most interesting statistics I'll mention is that we don't know how many people in the United States, let's just look at that population, have actually had COVID, have had the real thing, maybe 120 million, maybe less, maybe more. We've got a big population that's never been exposed to COVID. Guess what? We're all gonna get it, in my opinion. This is why Israel is seeing a ton of cases. Certainly they're testing more. And with all these cases, they're having less hospitalizations. They're still getting it, you know? They're still getting and spreading COVID. From the way I see it, Evan, this is just Paul Saladino's perspective, for what it's worth, everyone is gonna get COVID. Whether you're vaccinated or not, we know the vaccines are leaky. Uh, The vaccines may be accelerating it. We don't know for sure. Uh, Just saying that alone would get me kicked off every social media platform for the rest of my life, um, but that's a possibility. I don't think we're going to get out of this until everybody's had it, so get used to it. You know, Buckle up, everybody. You know, Fix your gut, like we talked about. Fix your metabolic health. That's why all this is so important, because it doesn't matter if you've been vaccinated. You're still going to get it. I hope your severity is as low as possible for everyone listening, but the vaccine isn't going to protect you uh, entirely, and I think everybody in the population is going to get COVID at some point, and that may happen over the next two to three years. And then I think it'll probably, there'll be new variants. But at that point, I think we'll all have a reasonable amount of natural immunity. And there's questions about how durable natural immunity really is. But the studies I've seen are suggesting that it's reasonable. So
1: who knows? Yeah. Dr. Corey, Dr. Corey said something very similar to you uh, that he was basically glad. Apparently he had a mild case of it, I think about a month ago. And he said he was pretty along the way, I'm not verbatim here, but along the lines of, Hey, I'm glad I already had it. I've got natural immunity. I'm no longer taking ivermectin is what he said, because I think he was using it uh, prophylactically. Maybe it didn't work, or I don't know. Maybe you can ask him about it. But he said to the, something along the lines of, I'm happy I got it. I'm glad it's over sort of thing. And that's how I personally feel, too. But then Dr. Merrick kind of like chimed back at him, and he's like, I don't want it. This is a terrible disease. This is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And then he brought up one case of, a, 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 this is Dr. Merrick talking. He brought up one case of a female colleague that had COVID twice. But Dr. Corey's like, well, how do you know? And da-da-da. And he and he was trying to like converse with him about that because I'm not seeing any repeat infections at all. And I've worked with a ton of people that have been infected. I've not seen a single person. Now I'm not in a hospital setting, right? But I've not seen a single person that had natural immunity get reinfected. I've never seen a double infection. Is it possible? I guess. Dr. Merrick said he saw it. He's a smart guy, but I'm not seeing it. And uh, Dr. Corey acted like he hasn't seen a single case of a double infection either, or a second-term Same. infection.
0: At least, at least anecdotally, some of my friends would would claim that they've been infected twice, and I've, you know, experienced. I've, I've met some people who were not always in the best health who claimed they got COVID twice. So, well, here's the question that I have though awesome. for those
1: people that say that is, uh, and, and Dr. Corey, he kind of when I interviewed him, he kind of talked about this idea of like long haul being, I don't want to say a myth, but that long haul shouldn't exist if you properly treat it the first time Mm -hmm. and so what i suspect may be happening in these potential second Cases or reinfection, I'm suspecting maybe there was still some molecules hiding around, maybe a stress, a death, a divorce, some big, like, you know, job loss, or just all the stress of the hysteria that's gone on. Maybe that weakened the immune system and allowed this idea of like a reinfection. Maybe it's not like a new external infection. Maybe it was still in there. They never fully got rid of it, kind of like when you see with Epstein-Barr with herpes viruses, right? As you mentioned, it's kind of in the same category as these RSVs, right? Or the the RNA viruses, it's in the same category as like they they compared it in that paper to similar ones. Is it possible that it it was a hiding place somewhere?
0: Yeah, like a recrudescence, we might say in medicine. It's it's totally possible. Um, It's absolutely possible. It just brings back the importance of actually doing other things. And then I think hopefully we'll see studies Yet another potential application of ivermectin. Like, should we be trying ivermectin people with long COVID? Who knows?
1: Well, I will tell you, I was not formally diagnosed with long COVID, but I will tell you that I had my my sense of smell in the last year completely disappeared. Then I thought my sense of smell returned completely, but I realized it didn't because like my wife put a mixed herb. Uh, blend up to my nose and I could be, I was like, yeah, I could barely smell it. And it was like burning her nose. And I was like, okay, maybe my smell's not back. Then I took the ivermectin, my smell came a hundred percent back. I was like, whoa. Then the smell kind of went away again and then it kind of came back. So I mean, it, it's definitely been hit or miss with me. So I, I would say it's been very, very effective in the energy issues I had and very, very effective with the loss of smell that I had.
0: Joe Rogan is perhaps the most high profile case of COVID that we've had in <laughs> during the pandemic. And he threw the kitchen sink at it: monoclonal antibodies, ivermectin, I believe prednisone or another steroid, plus NAD drips and probably some vitamin C. He never lost taste and smell. I didn't do anything. Uh, I just, I just had COVID for three days, and it was fairly mild. And then I did lose taste and smell for a week. But in retrospect, you know, maybe I would have taken ivermectin at that time and have seen how much, uh, if that had affected the taste and smell. Thankfully, I can still taste steak. Um, I want to show this one before we wrap up. Uh, It's a study, I do not believe it's been peer reviewed uh, yet, but vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals have similar viral loads in communities with a high prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 Delta. Joe Biden, eat your heart out. This is, your your mandates are based on uh, absolute hogwash, man. Here we use this viral load data to compare the amount of SARS-CoV-2 present in test positive specimens from people who self-report their vaccine status uh, and the date of final immunization. And what they find our results, while preliminary, suggest that if vaccinated individuals become infected with Delta variant, they may be sources for COVID SARS-CoV two transmission to others. So, we're not done with this, guys. <laughs> it's not. It's being being infected with Delta, which is ninety three percent of the infections now that I've seen, based on many figures. Uh, if you're vaccinated, you're still spreading it to other people, potentially even more. So, the idea that vaccination protects everyone. It might protect them at an individual level, but I don't think it's protecting people from spreading it to other people. So this is, uh, again, just more more craziness. And I'll just wrap, I'll say this, and then we'll wrap up so we can do the second part two on your podcast right now. I I appreciate that Twitter has been less severe at censoring um, data. And someone posted a tweet the other day that said Twitter doesn't care about misinformation, they just care about things that align with their political views. And I thought that was kind of interesting because they use as an example, a number of tweets that were allowed to stand on Twitter of 1,200 COVID deaths in Florida in a single day when everyone was suddenly aware that that was misinformation because they were backfilling their reported deaths and it wasn't all 1,200 people dying in the same day. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting indictment. Uh, I, I do believe Twitter is better. I do believe that um, that that there are still some influences at Twitter, uh, predominantly advertising and, and Wall Street that affect what things get entered from Twitter and what things don't. But I, I thought it was an interesting double standard to see that, um, to see that being played out, to see that, that misinformation regarding overplayed deaths in Florida, which were misreported, was not taken down, but that um, things which didn't align with the narrative were taken down. And certainly, I, mean, I believe that Instagram and Facebook are the worst at that, perhaps followed closely by YouTube.
1: All we're doing is looking at stuff, man. I mean, it's really sad because part of me is like, you and I've had this conversation many times, like we're, we're just looking at stuff and asking questions. None of this should be that crazy. I just want to remind people, I wasn't alive for this, but supposedly on April 12th in the year 1633, Galileo was ordered to turn himself in to the holy office to begin trial For holding the belief that the earth revolves around the sun, which was deemed heresy by the church and uh, standard practice was that the accused would be imprisoned and secluded during the trial. This was in 1633. I get goosebumps reading that, that he was put on trial and was, you know, the standard practice was to be imprisoned and secluded because he believed that the earth revolved around the sun.
0: It it, it asks the question who gets to decide what's medical information, you know, the, the the inquisition, the the Catholic church, the current administration, the social media juggernauts. It's like, who's, who says so,
1: and and then, and then here's
0: his, uh, so here
1: was the order. So uh, the, his Galileo's technical argument didn't win. And on June 22nd in 1633, the church handed down the order and said, we pronounce judge and declare that you Galileo have rendered yourself suspected by this holy office of heresy and you've believed a false you've believed and held a false uh, doctrine that the sun is the center of the world and it does not move from east to west and that the earth does not move and is not the center of the world you're wrong the earth is the center of the world he was ruled against that he spent the rest of his life under house arrest. It took more than 300 years to find out that Galileo was right and to clear his name of heresy.
0: That's crazy, man. We, I can only hope that's not happening now, Evan. I can only hope.
1: So we're in 2021. So that <laughs> would be, what, 2321 maybe that this all gets resolved. I, I won't had- be here. <laughs> It'd be mean, interesting to go ahead in a time machine, man. Who knows? Oh, goodness, what are the history books going to say? I mean, you hit on the Wikipedia being uh, altered. We'll just leave it at that. But I've known Wikipedia has been uh, contaminated for a while now, so that didn't surprise me what you read about it.
0: Without a doubt. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Always appreciate your perspective. Thanks for sharing with all this new stuff with us, and look forward to part three, brother.
1: My my pleasure. And uh, just if I may, brief plug my podcast. Please do. You've been on there. Uh, You'll be on there twice. I've done, I just hit over episode 400 was with Dr. Corey. I encourage people to check that out. That's quickly going up in the rankings on uh, Apple. It's becoming one of the most downloaded episodes, rightfully so very, very important conversation. Uh, It's 10 year 10 year anniversary of my podcast coming up. I work with people clinically around the world. If you need help, please reach out. I've got a functional medicine practitioner on staff under me that works alongside with me. Uh, We don't prescribe drugs, but we can help you be healthy. So I'll leave it at that. Evanbrand.com has all the details. The podcast is there and, you know, hopefully I'll help you out and, you know, help, help you learn something.
0: I love what you're doing, brother. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.